You're listening to Distilling Theology. I'm Blake. And I'm Justin. This is a new podcast combining discussions of theology and distilled spirits. And dad jokes. Amen. What's wrong with you people? You're not David. I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. Fatality. You know... Starting a podcast about theology and distilled spirits is whiskey business. <laughs> I said that with a straight face. This is Distilling Theology. Welcome back to another episode of Distilling Theology. Blake, I have a question for you. Please. How do you get a country girl's attention? How? A tractor. <laughs> <laughs> See, I know, I know that we we sell ourselves as like telling dad jokes and puns, but we definitely just lost half of our listening audience right there. Well, uh, listen, to if those listening still... audience can't handle these dad jokes, then they can't handle what's about to come. That is totally fair. <laughs> to those of you still listening, welcome back. <laughs> Before we dive deeply into this lovely topic this evening. Hmm. Let's first talk about what we're sipping tonight. Amen. Lake. So tonight we are sipping a Scotch whiskey. This one comes to us from the Scottish Isles region. It is from a distillery that is one of my personal favorites as far as your mainline distilleries. And I am speaking, of course, of none other than the Talisker Distillery, established 1830. It is the only distillery to date on the Isle of Skye. And... Tonight, we will be sipping their travel-exclusive Dark Storm edition, which is described as a deep, dark, and rich talisker, matured and selected heavily charred casts to give it extra spice and smoke, which, okay, so as much as I love talisker, as much as I love this whiskey, that statement is absurd, because <laughs> all whiskey is matured in charred oak casks. So... <laughs> Guys, what are you doing? Uh, it's bottled at 45.8% alcohol by volume. And here's a quote from the box that I I appreciate. So so I say all this to somebody who loves the drink. And this this testifies, I think, to the fact that I can have issues with some of the, the practices or the marketing schemes mm. or some of sure. the things of like Talisker being owned by Diageo, which is one of the biggest liquor distributors in the world. So there's certain regulations that, that happen to them and, and marketing ploys and but even all that considered, I still love the whiskey. So it's like, yeah. But they say no whiskey is more true to the place of its birth than powerful maritime talisker made since 1830 beside the shores of Loch Harport on the wild remote Isle of Skye. Imagine tasting a mighty storm at sea and you have Talisker Dark Storm, the single malt that takes an intense whiskey experience to a new level. Its rich flavor Dramatized by careful cask selection, Talisker Dark Storm is matured in heavily charred oak casks to invigorate the palate, yada, 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 with, an, with a whole ocean of spice Ooh, and smoke. An ocean of spice. Bottled at the premium strength of 45.8% alcohol by volume, Talisker Dark Storm faces you with all the wild, untamed spirit of a full-blown storm at sea. This is a travel retail exclusive, so you can only buy it in duty-free shops. I bought this one in a duty-free shop in Amman, Jordan, on my way back from a 14-day trip to Israel. Weird uh, flex, so. but okay. <laughs> hey. <laughs> so what are you getting on the nose, Justin? Strangely enough, I'm almost getting bacon, but I think that that's is... the result of the pepper uh, mm. mixed with like the, 
maybe the chili, chili spices. Yeah, pepper, spices. This is a little meatier than like the regular 10-year expression of Talisker. This is not age-stated, so it's a blend of older and younger whiskeys. But unlike their broad release of the Talisker Storm, which I find a little bit too metallic because of how young the, the, the spirit is, sure. this has enough matured spirit in it that it balances it out. And it still has a ferocity to it, for lack of a better word. But I really... I really enjoy this one. There's there's definitely a combination of like orchard fruits in there too though. Yeah. Well there's a little bit of there's a little bit of that fruitiness along with this like kind of bacony, peppery smoke, like malty, I wouldn't quite malty. say brisket. Yeah, because like yeah. You, you, that more gets into like Lagavulin territory and more heavily yeah. peated malt. But you definitely get that like there's some smoked meat going on here, like for yeah. sure. Let's let's sip it and And, and bacon uh, is my favorite uh, <laughs> breakfast food so praise the lord <laughs> there's a there's a vision that we'll touch on someday i'm sure thank you. bacon amen <laughs> cheers oh, oh almost forgot oh man yeah this is my first time having dark storm mm. it's my second time tonight <laughs> there's definitely a big oak influence mm-hmm. um not as smoky as i anticipated yeah um which is kind of refreshing but there's like as it sits you get more of the citrusy stuff and honey mm-hmm. and like like apples almost mm-hmm. that's good well do you also feel that one thing that like Talisker 10 does this very well. Darkstorm does it. The 18 year old expression also does this where you get like this almost, it's almost like someone's billowing camp smoke up. Like mm-hmm. after you, after it finishes, like you swallow it, there's still this like heat that keeps coming up um, from like in your chest. And this is this distillery specifically the 10 year expression is what got me into single malt scotch. Um, mm-hmm. So Talisker will always have a soft spot in my heart. Uh, even though there are other whiskeys that I've come to appreciate for their more nuanced and kind of hipstery indie vibe. Uh, there's so, just like, something you, about it. If you had to tell me right now, who would be your favorite distillery at the moment? It's a trap. Uh, that's a really tough question. Who is my favorite distillery at the moment? So, I cannot give a singular answer, and like a good uh, theologian, we're going to distinguish. I'm going to say... It's uh, the most Presbyterian answer I've ever heard. <laughs> I really I really enjoy um, the Glendronic Distillery, which we haven't tasted mm-hmm. anything from for the show yet, but we will get into it for a Speyside Scotch, just because... That was, of the... a, that was a very exciting one. When you first introduced me to Speyside Scotches, that yeah. really got me hooked. Well, and it's something about them. They're age-stated, they're very transparent, mm-hmm. and... They talk about the casks used and they do all these weird expressions. Like there's like three or four sure. different versions of the 15 year old Glendronic. And you right, usually yeah. <laughs> like you can't once they're gone, they're gone. They, they're limited releases. So I enjoy that. Um, as far as like the Isles, I love Talisker like and Bunahaven right now is probably rocking my spot for Isla, even though it's not a normal Isla whiskey. And that's I had some why it, last night. It was delicious. Dude, it, it never gets it's old. It's really man. good. And I'm really enjoying the High West Distillery for an American-based one, just because Samuel Shapo sent us more High West, so we're gonna try it, and uh, I'm a little spoiled by it. But you what about you? you? You guys are fantastic. You guys that are listening, that are sending us scotches, yes, and, and whiskeys in general. I'm not saying that uh, they they help uh, you know spring souls from purgatory, but. Um... <laughs> 
if you'll indulge us for a second. <laughs> That's all for now. All right. Speaking of indulgences, uh, we will forgive your sins if you join us on Patreon. <laughs> wow. I'm uh, just kidding. This might uh, be but we would love to have you. Um, yes, please. Because then you us. could see our faces as we talk about this. This is good stuff. This is. Um, no, this is delicious. I'm very pleased yeah. with this. You know yeah. my favorite distillery. I when I get when I'm, I'm setting my ways, man. When I <laughs> when I find something, I dig. This is true, and we haven't even tasted some of the older Belvenies that are available yet. But we'll mm. get there. Indeed, we will get there. But this is a great one to pair. Uh, for tonight's topic, which honestly, I have no idea how we're going to fit this topic in the time frame we have. Yeah. Because I titled it an intro. A, oh, sorry. A brief, quote unquote, introduction to the study of theology. Um, Congratulations. You played yourself. So there's that. Yeah. <laughs> listen, Blake, listen. If you want to learn to be fearless in everything, Learn to be fearless in one thing. Wow, that's so so uh, motivating, Justin. It reminds me of uh, a good word. <laughs> Some of you are just one step away from stepping into who God called you to be. Oh man, that's 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 fire right there. You're bringing it. You're bringing the heat. Are you sure about that? How about this? How do you have the faith to step through fear, Blake? I don't know. Remember whose you are. Oh. Remember who has called you and equipped you. Remember. Whose prayer works within you. Remember who will never leave you. Remember who you serve. Is this a rhetorical question meant to drive me to say God in a broad general sense of God being a loving deity who accepts me as I am and doesn't require any change or transformation? Well, obviously. <laughs> I mean, success you know, is not about smooth sailing. Success is about obedience, Blake. <laughs> you know, I know, I know you're going through a lot right now, Justin, and transition is normal. Transition... <laughs> is necessary so thank you guys for sitting through that uh we decided to read some quotes from evangelical speakers and and the thing is like nothing in those quotes is really heretical i mean you could someone's going to nitpick this and distinguish and say no this line is heretical but across the board distinguish hey (laughs) but none of those things are like particularly heretical or like even unorthodox they're just Mm -hmm. really shallow and they don't actually say anything (laughs) There's just no substance. Right. Ultimately, those quotes kind of sum up what evangelical churches today Mm -hmm. are saying on the regular Sunday from the pulpit. And it's more like a motivational speech or a TED talk than it is an exegetical sermon that teaches us how to understand what this says and how to apply it to our lives. Yeah. You know, you get a few few inspirational speeches, you know, uh, some... Fun music and a little light show, and then you're encouraged for the next uh, six days until you come back and get your fix again. Yeah. Rather than being taught the fundamentals of the faith, right. you know, uh, you can go to almost any evangelical today and say, "So tell me your, your tell me what your views are on um, eschatology," and they're going to say, "What what's that?" Right. Why don't they know what that is? Well, yeah. there's a lack of academia in the church, and that's because there's a lack of academia in the pulpits, mm-hmm. and so on. Um, so real quick, I think before we get into this today, we should open, I think Blake and I are going to start opening with a prayer because we are a couple of men of God and we like to worship him hmm. in prayer. And Amen. so uh, we're going to use this wonderful collection of Puritan prayers called the Valley of Vision. 
um, I highly recommend this. If you want to feel this book is to your prayer life as Paul Washer is to your ears. <laughs> if you want to feel like a terrible, terrible Christian, read these and you will uh, desire to be be better. <laughs> I that's, that's quite a sell there, Justin. I would say um, for me, Valley Vision... <laughs> Like Paul says, imitate me insofar as I imitate Christ. We talked about this before. And so as we join with this whole body of believers, like, and we'll, t- we'll touch on this very briefly today, but like the Puritan theology, their whole goal is to take all this knowledge about God and this study of God and this thinking about God and apply it into our lives. And these prayers speak to that. And a lot of them are basically like, well, I would say contemporary, like from the 16 and 1700s, but contemporary mm-hmm. iterations of what the psalmist says. And yeah. so not inspired, but so, so profound and way richer than a lot of my own prayers uh, in this life. So, yeah, lead us into some prayer before we jump into absolutely probably the <laughs> my, my weakest attempt to uh, consolidate a complex topic into a short episode. <laughs> uh, we'll start with the very beginning one. Uh, just called the Valley of Vision. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the Valley of Vision, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed, hemmed in by the mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox, the way down is the way up, the way to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is to receive. That the valley is the place of vision. Hmm. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter their stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness. Thy life in my depth. Thy joy in my sorrow. Thy grace in my sin. Thy riches in my poverty. Thy glory in my valley. Oof. Amen. The scotch was a good pairing for that prayer. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I, I mean, I know I joke a lot and make the, this is that sermon and this is that, but like really the depth and kind of the, the billows that keep coming up as you're sipping this scotch Precisely. are similar to my experience reading those prayers and praying those hey, prayers. Not to interrupt you so rudely. No. Oh. We got another patron. Another hey. one. Hey, Conrad. You're the best. Thank you. You rock. You're going to see this now. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) There was one other quote I wanted to read. This one, not so wishy-washy, but short Mm. and pithy at the same time. From uh, Alistair Begg, he says, God is fulfilling the purposes that he's had from all of eternity to conform us to the image of his son. And Mm. honestly, shorter than some of the other things we read. (laughs) And significantly more profound. Because he's basically just exegeting and representing what the scripture says. So, on that note... Uh, For the record, I may be rudely interrupted by a cell phone. That's because I work in a hospital. For the record, if you're listening and you heard our first episode uh, when we introduced what we did for a living, I was working in the school system at the time. I now work in healthcare. Same job, different place, more money. <laughs> but I'm also on call once every five weeks, so I'm currently on call tonight, and my phone may ring. So Duty calls, as it were. Indeed. So, systematic theology, Blake. <laughs> yeah, I was like, you know what would be a really fun episode would be if we consolidated and explained all the different studies of theology in bullet form. And I started to make my notes. And uh, there's like way too many notes for us to possibly get through. So we're going to try. 
just for reference, most of what I'm going to be borrowing is out of uh, Dr. Joel Beakey's Reform Systematic Theology Volume 1, which is something I've not finished reading yet. Nope. But everything I've read in it so far is just really accessible. He's writing to a broad audience. Some people said, like, why do we have another systematic? Like, there's so many. There's Burkhoff. There's Bavink. Obviously, there's Calvin. It's like, why are we adding yet another one? And and I think what Beakey's doing is combining this historic practice of doing theology with bringing every chapter to a close in doxology or worship of God and reflection. Yeah. And he's making it accessible to the layperson. One thing I was going to say, it's very yeah. accessible. Yeah. Like, like Justin and I can read it and summarize it. So we're, if us two bums drinking whiskey and making dad <laughs> jokes can, can follow along, I'm sure uh, you all can as well. So I have a couple starters here before we get into the the meat um and we're already like just burning time but you know what there's another podcast that does this every week so i don't feel so bad and i love that show <laughs> so what is theology we talk about that we are distilling theology and we have touched on this some of these things will be repetitious but mm-hmm. theology simply means words or speech about god properly speaking it is the study of god and god's relationship to the world and i'm just going to go down this quick list here of of other ideas before we get into some quotes but you know there's we talk about religion which broadly is just referring to belief in a divine being combined with an attempt to honor him through practice or or morality theology is a narrower focus right it's it's not a whole life of devotion. It's specifically the engagement of the mind with truth as the foundation mm-hmm. for the religious life. So it's about building, that, laying that foundation upon which we can live life out of. Then we get into doctrine, which is teaching or instruction that's focused on particular points of theology. And usually it's like there's general agreement within an ecclesiastical body. So like the Baptists have doctrines, the Presbyterians have doctrines, the Dutch Reformed have doctrines, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have dogma, which is usually reserved for like core biblical doctrines, officially established in a church's confessional statements um, that are, that that are part of the identity. Around. Correct. And Dr. Beakey in the book gives this quote where he says, we may visualize the relationship between theology, religion, doctrine, and dogma as a set of concentric circles with dogma at the core, doctrine next, then theology, and outermost religion or faith and life. Theology then is a broad intellectual discipline that forms a crucial link between the doctrines cherished by the church and the whole exercise of godliness in the world. So I think that gives us a really good framework of where like what we're talking about, right? That it is important. Theology is mm-hmm. essential because it connects. It's the the connection point between these things that we claim are true, absolute truths, right? Uh, in an age of uncertainty and truths about God, about the world. And then broadly, what does that look like in morality and how we live our life? Like, how do we get from here to there? And theology is the, the tool that we use to uh, achieve that. But yeah, that's just kind of a brief uh glance at the topic um (laughs) yeah (laughs) well to break it down before we before we actually get into these different subsections of systematic theology we have some quotes for you about theology studying theology and so Mm. on yeah so naturally we'll start with john calvin (laughs) surprise (laughs) and john calvin said that pure religion consists not in cold speculation about god but honoring him for he is 
to be duly honored according to his will. Mm. I think that last section is incredibly important. Yeah. Um, a- according to his own will, not according to our will, but his will, which then again plays into other sections of theology, the regulative principle, and so on. Yeah. This uh, next quote is from Gerhardus Voss. <laughs> Correct. 1862 uh, is when he was around through 1949. Theology is eminently a process in which God speaks and man listens. Mm. I actually read that to my dad uh, a few, few few minutes ago uh, before we started recording, and he's just like, wow, that's that's good. Voss is known for his biblical theology in particular, and that quote to me, like, that unfortunately, I think there's a caricature, and the caricature is there because there are people who behave this way, and I've been guilty of this, mm-hmm. right? There's this association of, like, theology is heady and intellectual and arrogant, Or it's armchair theology, right? Like I'm just sitting back, smoking a pipe and thinking all these pretentious thoughts and I'm not actually affecting life. And I think Voss's quote here is really critical for all of us, whatever discipline of theology that we are focused upon, (laughs) right? right? Because ultimately it's, we shut up and listen to God's (laughs) self-revelation. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Continuing on. Mm. Beaky from his book that we just mentioned, Reformed Systematic Theology, Volume One of Four. Yes. <laughs> uh, on page forty-four, says both exegesis, which is interpretation of the text, and hermeneutics, which is how we read the text. Both exegesis and hermeneutics depend upon systematic theology. The better an interpreter understands the great teachings of the Bible as a coherent system, mm. hence systematic theology. The better he will understand and interpret its individual parts. That's, in other words, if if you know the whole story, you can then more easily understand different parts of the story. <laughs> right. Um, I think that's true for almost any area of study. To be honest, yeah. Um, when you do biology, you study the whole of biology before you start studying the individual parts of biology. Mm-hmm. Um. Of course, it makes sense to do the same thing with theology. Yeah. He continues on page 52 and says the multidisciplinary nature of theology should teach us humility. Now, no one person can master all of these fields. Mm. And to honor the one spirit who energizes and unites us, we must not divorce these disciplines from each other. As David Clark says, they are facets of the diamond of a unified and holistic understanding of the faith. Mm. Yeah, I think that's so ultimately, right? That's what are we doing with this podcast? Like we sit here and sip whiskey and we talk about theology, not because we want vain speculation, not because we want to just like think that we're so smart, but because we want to reflect on the God who created us, who redeemed us, who is sanctifying us and ultimately who's going to who's going to glorify and justify his elect and his children. And yeah, Yeah, if you want a smart podcast, this isn't the place to (laughs) go. I can recommend a few uh, that I that I thoroughly enjoy and always learn from from people who are very well studied in this stuff. We're you know Justin's probably more formally studied than I am on this, but you know we we're both just huge nerds and 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 the thing is right like like Dr. R. C. Sproul used to say like in his book Everyone's a Theologian. The idea being we all have to deal with this in some capacity. We don't all have to be a, a PhD in every one of these facets that we're going to talk about. Right. But we all ultimately have theology, and our thoughts about God are our theology. So it behooves us as 
faithful children to want to know our father, to want to know our brother, to want to know the spirit inside, right? Like we, so we want to know the savior. So, right. Right. you know, it's, exactly. it's not about, I know so much, listen to me talk about stuff. It's like, Hey, let's reflect on these things and glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well, I think that plays a lot into the idea of the Christian life and the purpose of the Christian life being, we don't want to, we don't want to be saved. And we, in other words, we don't want to go to heaven because we want to escape hell right? to punch a ticket. We want to be in heaven because that's where God is and we love God and we enjoy him and we admire him and adore him and worship him. Amen. And so naturally the inclination of a Christian then should be that of someone who wants to study God, to know God, to to know him intimately and to spend time with him and to really understand what he's speaking to us because we trust him and we believe that what he has for us is best. And then therefore, well, then let's understand it better so that we can better honor him and mm. and succeed. Well, thank you guys for listening to this week's episode of Distilling Theology. <laughs> that mic drop there, I don't... Uh, um, uh, so I just want to quickly read down the list. Uh, Dr. Beaky breaks down eight disciplines within the study of theology and i think these are pretty accurate i'm just going to read a really quick highlight and then we'll go through each of them in in a little bit more detail so he points to exegetical theology biblical theology historical theology philosophical theology systematic theology apologetic and polemic theology ethical theology and practical theology and then you get into like systematic has eight distinctions within it. So which will be a whole other episode <laughs> yeah. uh, that we may highlight here. But uh, so each of these has kind of uh, I, I appreciate Beaky's approach because he's very much a, like a teacher of students. So he understands how to communicate information. So we're going to be borrowing very heavily <laughs> from Dr. Beaky here. And I would encourage you if you find this episode interesting and if you have an interest in this stuff. I mean, Justin, you can say for yourself, but I think this is one of the best intros to systematic theology i mean granted it's mm -hmm. a big book and it's a commitment and it's volume one of four so like there are other resources out there but it's just it's been so yeah, enlightening I, for me i'd say like if you're looking for a modern contemporary introduction to systematic theology to properly understand the whole so that you can study the parts <laughs> uh definitely start uh with beaky stuff also bavink mm. um mm. you can't you can't not recommend that and um, calvin yep yeah so there's some great uh, some great content out there if you want to really get into systematic theology, which we highly recommend you do mm. uh, as a Amen. brother and sister in Christ. But this is a good this is a good one and it's modern and it's it's hip. So <laughs> yeah, the colors it's blue and green. So it's, yeah, you know, it's those cool. Are, those are the colors of grace. <laughs> what? I have no idea. I'm making things up. On that note, Justin, what is what is like the core question? So these are all different you know, studies, like people get PhDs in these specific fields, you know, all within the heading of theology. So what is the main question that exegetical theology is asking? So exegetical theology really is ultimately asking, what does a particular part of the Bible teach? Mm. This is what our pastors do essentially every Lord's Day. Yeah. They're taking a particular part of the Bible, a section, a passage, a verse, uh, or several, and they are taking that text and they're explaining, extrapolating, putting into context what that particular part of the Bible teaches and applying it to uh, the listeners in our lives. Mm. So, of course, that includes the study of the canon of Scripture. Right. You have to know. <laughs> well, you have to. You, you, you got to know what Bible you're reading. <laughs> right. That's an, an obviously incredibly imperative. It helps to understand textual criticism. How we have 
the Bible that we have, yeah. how we know we can trust it, knowing the history of the text. On that note, I watched a documentary from, I think it was Faith Life, that I totally forgot the name of, hold on, on textual criticism, and like, mm. it was so interesting, <laughs> and sure. I would highly recommend it to all of you, and it is called Fragments of Truth, and it is by Faith Life. Um, so Fragments of Truth is a documentary, and they say, can we trust the Bible? Our faith is based on the New Testament, but can we really trust the Bible? Skeptics say no, arguing that the gospel manuscripts have been doctored to push a theological agenda. In this new Faith Life original film, Dr. Craig Evans takes this claim head-on, traveling the globe to track down the most ancient New Testament manuscripts. Along the way, he highlights groundbreaking new evidence demonstrating the case for the reliability of the New Testament manuscripts stronger than ever. And I found myself at the end of that just like... Yes, like <laughs> the testimony of scripture is sure and God has preserved his word. So if you struggle with that, like if you wrestle with that, you know, take the time, rent that documentary, watch. I think it's like an hour, hour and a half. They made textual criticism, like which is one of the most dry academic, like mm -hmm. historic uh, <clears throat> studies ever. They made it super engaging and sure. it bolstered my faith personally. And it also encouraged me when I'm engaged with Internet atheists who are like, well, you know, the canon of scripture didn't really materialize until uh, the council of Nicaea, <laughs> until 300, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, yes, but actually no. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's two other recommendations I'd make to people. Oh, yes. The very first introduction to any sort of textual criticism that I heard, which wasn't really an introduction to textual criticism so much as it was just an overview of why we can trust the Bible and the text that we have. Mm. Uh, it was a, a sermon by Vody Bauckham. Oh, yes. Old school. I mean, this was back back in the day. And he essentially uh, gave a 45-minute sermon. or not, It was longer than it. It was like an hour sermon on why we can trust the Bible. And he went through several textual criticism-type um, subjects, talking about the languages, the manuscripts, how we got them, etc. And it was just fire. That was one of the very first things when I was first getting into Reformed theology. My buddy, my roommate at the time in college, uh, somehow stumbled upon it and shared it with me. We were both just like, wow, this is incredible. Um, little mm. did I know all these years later, I'd have such an appreciation for Vody as a pastor. Mm. And then also, obviously, for my Baptisto friends out there, anything by James White uh, is phenomenal. He can be a bit dry sometimes, but he is uh, a brilliant, brilliant guy when it comes to uh, I mean, he teaches these languages, he knows the languages, he knows the history, he knows church history, he knows how we got our texts and why we can trust them, and uh, textual variants and everything there is to know about textual criticism, and so on. Uh, and I've also met him, he's incredibly humble, mm. a very nice guy um, as well, so. Ooh. <sighs> okay, moving on. So what, um, else have, what else does exegetical theology cover? So obviously, during textual criticism, we cover the original languages. Mm. The different genres uh, of the Bible, uh, the Bible's literature. So you got, uh, you know, <laughs> you, you mean I have to actually consider uh, whether something was a, a, a personal letter written to a group of people versus uh, a piece of um, poetic literature versus a historical account. What is versus a law code? What is this news? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. yeah, sir. This is prophetic hyperbole. Um, the, the moon is not actually going to turn to blood. Uh, and so <laughs> John Hagee intensifies. Uh, <laughs> so the literary genres, the history, geography, and the culture, and the, mm. basically the context of what was going on in the right. ancient Near East, introductions to each book, you know, who wrote it, 
uh, the theme of the book, the whole point, who they're writing to is incredibly important. Uh, the why occasion, they're writing you know, it, yeah. Why they're writing it, where they're writing it from, Paul writing from prison versus elsewhere. Sure. The principle of hermeneutics or understanding, properly reading and understanding and interpreting the, the text is incredibly important because you can really, you can take a book of the Bible and you can really screw it up if you have a bad hermeneutic. <laughs> you mean Jeremiah twenty nine eleven isn't about me getting a nice car? <laughs> Listen, man, you can do all things... <laughs> My brother uh, said that to me the other night because he's kind of on the same page as me with all this. And I just gave him the heaviest side eye I think I've ever given anyone in my life because he was something <laughs> like, you can do all things, all means all. And I just looked at him like, I'm going, I'm going to throw something at you, but not really because I love my brother. And then, and yeah. he was being, he was kidding, uh, which was good. So exegesis, obviously what the text says and hermeneutics, what the text means mm, that's a good so that's, distinction that's one sub subsection there right we've gone through moving, one <laughs> yeah moving on from that uh blake tell us a bit about biblical theology what is biblical theology asking give us some context so biblical theology is really about like so one pet peeve of mine is i hear people pit like well you're really into the system but i like my biblical theology as if all <laughs> theology isn't founded upon the infallible word of god like <laughs> like where does theology come from it's mm-hmm. all based upon the scripture it's all based upon god's self-revelation there's a quote later that we'll get to about that and like <laughs> yeah it's not one versus the other right. they're the they're, this, they're on the same team. So, so biblical theology <laughs> refers to a specific field of study within the broader context of theological study. And the question it's addressing is, how is a particular doctrine of the Bible developed in relation to redemptive history? Redemptive history simply being the reality of how God interacts with his people from creation, fall, the introduction of the law through Moses, the covenants, ultimately culminating in the sending of Christ, our Savior, and his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and his return, right? Redemptive history is has unfolded and is continuing to unfold and will unfold ultimately in Christ's return, mm. right? So, mm-hmm. so how do particular doctrines of the Bible develop in relation to that redemptive history, to God's redemptive acts, to real things that happen in real history, right? So this considers how God's truth is revealed progressively over time. Because we know, the author of Hebrews makes this very clear, and I see this in my reading plan where like, I'm reading Leviticus and I'm seeing all these very strict laws and strict regulations for the temple for how the people of God are to live. And then I see Hebrews mm-hmm. telling me, this is a shadow and a figure of what Christ, of these heavenly yeah. realities, right? Yeah. And so God reveals progressively. He didn't drop everything in our lap all at once, right? Biblical theology explores the inseparable link between God's revelation and his acts of redemption. So you you can't just isolate God and sit back in an armchair and ignore the reality of the parting of the Red Sea, the flood of Noah, God's acts of, of history in the book of Judges where he's he's preserving his people, his work in the kings, his work in David, the prophets. Like these are his, there are historical events that actually happened and God yeah. ties his revelation to real historical things. And ultimately biblical theology helps exegetical theology, Beaky says, by locating each text in its proper redemptive and covenantal context, rather than flattening the Bible as if it were all revealed in a day. 
right? Like, right. We, and it's easy for us to take that for granted, right? Because when sure, we because we have the whole thing, right? Right. We have a closed canon of scripture, and so we can just say, "Oh, yeah, well, obviously," but like they did not know that mm-hmm. Jesus, like they did not know that he had to be put to death. Because if Satan knew, he would not have crucified the Lord of Glory, right? Because God's redemption, God's his, God's Consider- God's revelation is is progressive. Right, consider even the disciples. Mm. So he told them time and time again that he had to die Mm. so that he could rise again. And then he died and they're like, what do we do? He's dead. (laughs) It's like, did you not listen? But it's not that they didn't listen, it's just that they didn't hear. Yeah. Which is why this is so important. Right. And biblical theology also serves systematic theology. Again, Beeky says, by linking together parts of the Bible with great themes that span redemptive history and culminate in the person, work, and church of Jesus Christ. Right? So Not of Latter-day Saints. <laughs> got him. <laughs> right. Because ultimately, all these pieces are pointing mm-hmm. to a person. It's a personal reality. This isn't just some abstract thought. Biblical theology is a great tool to demonstrate the unity of the Bible, the immutability or the unchangeable nature of God's eternal purpose in Christ Jesus, right? In in Genesis 3, man falls and God says, God states his plan. And in Ephesians, it says, God predestined us in Christ before the foundation of the world, which means even before all of this, we'll get into that in another episode, but even in all of this, God has had an eternal plan of redemption. Mm-hmm. And all of the Bible is unified in that message of God's unchangeable, unwavering determination to save sinners. Right. <laughs> right. Right. The fall was not a surprise. <laughs> right. Which we'll get into that in uh, Theology Proper, which will probably be about 12 episodes in itself. Uh, and, and finally, <laughs> systematic theology is tied in that it helps biblical theology to link revelation at any one point in history to the fullness of revelation that we possess in Jesus Christ, right? So as we, you know, I've, I find myself very much drawn to the, the study of systematic theology, which you can't do without biblical theology, but at the same time, biblical theology benefits from systematic because systematic like helps you to link all these individual pieces of redemptive history in this grand sweeping narrative of scripture. So historical theology, Justin, what is, what is this all about? Because I, I, you know, how do we, how do we address this topic? So historical theology, the fundamental question being how have the doctrines of Christianity been identified, formulated, elaborated, defended, and applied during the long history of the church. Mm. Something that you and I are still a part of, for the record. What? Uh, <laughs> so, in other words, let's take a look at all this systematic theology and how is it applied to the church, right. to us, as, as we go. So, what particular theologians or churches taught about particular doctrines in the context of histor- the history of Christianity? So, in other words, Orthodox Christianity, the Orthodox historical teaching of the church, has been What? Very important question. Uh, Obviously, we understand, unlike some other gigantic churches, (coughs) Romans, that tradition is not authoritative Mm. in the same way the scripture is. However, it can be incredibly beneficial. Um, uh, There's nothing new under the sun, and chances are if most of the theologians in history that are in the Orthodox Christian camp haven't believed a certain thing, chances are if somebody comes along and starts saying, well, actually, they've all been wrong all this time. Probably not. <laughs> right. 
because nobody's answering new questions. Right. Now, historical is different because like biblical and exegetical obviously are all about the text of scripture in a very specific yes. way. So what are the the primary sources or, or the main like in this field of study, what are people really reading and studying? Because it's not quite as laser focused on the text the way exegetical and biblical are, but it's still critically sure. important. Sure. So obviously we want to look at the writings of past theologians. Mm. As reformers, you and I obviously have great emphasis on the creeds and the confessions sure. and the other uh, important documents of the church, you know, the, the canons of Dort and mm. uh, different um, 39 articles. You know, I mean, there's tons of... Yeah. Canons of Dort uh, is going to be a five-part series. <laughs> Just adds up. <laughs> so we have all these different historical documents, a little awesome link for some of you if you just go open up a browser and search reformed standards the link there has all of the confessional creedal historical reformed documents that you could possibly want and even a catechism for kids you're saying uh, so i don't have awesome... to spend all the money on buying you copies don't. but you should you don't you should <laughs> buy your own copies we definitely both have several copies of each <laughs> right <laughs> we, we even both recently bought bibles that have them all included got them <laughs> Because we got sick of taking four or five different books to church. Um, <laughs> so, incredibly important stuff, yes. uh, for sure. Moving on from that, historical theology really opens our eyes uh, to alternative interpretations of the scriptures that we might not have considered before. Mm. Now, you got this, this is you got to be careful about this, right? Because we we don't want to waver too far. Sure. For example. Jehovah's Witnesses have a very different alternative interpretation of what Scripture says, <laughs> but that's that's kind of outside the bounds. So it's important to, um, but but consider more along the lines of something as simple as uh, I say simple <laughs> as baptism. How we understand historical theology impacts how we understand ultimately how we understand baptism and and sure. how that applies to the other portions of systematic theology. Which is why, for example, Blake and I may or may not have different views on baptism. Uh, <laughs> I guess we'll never know. <laughs> How many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll? <laughs> um, but for example, you know, as a Baptist, I, I, I look at uh, a lot of historical Baptist teachings, and that impacts how I view a lot of theology. Yeah, absolutely. And I've read Presbyterian work. I've read, yeah. uh, obviously, I've read um, Continental Reformed or Dutch Reformed work. I even had a moment where I almost turned into a baby dunker, uh, <laughs> which I had a long conversation with Blake on. And sure enough, that just made me more Baptist. But <laughs> <laughs> but historical theology also helps us to see how our beliefs might have been influenced by the theology of the past. Yeah. How what I believe now and what I'm reading now has been influenced by theologians and the, the church fathers and uh, those who have come before. Well, and that and uh, in the process that challenges some of the presuppositions and traditions we may have inherited, right, from our mm -hmm. churches, our cultures, our upbringing. I mean, that's Big been time in the West, especially you and I, both in our own journeys, um, as God has been changing our theological outlooks, respectively, mm -hmm. right. That's been a huge part of my journey, right? I, I'm I'm seeing okay, well, this is one thing that I thought, and then I, I'm like, okay, here's here's this stream of thought, and now I'm being challenged in that, and I think that's healthy. I think we should all encounter and read those things. And again, you and I say this probably every episode. Eventually, we'll stop saying it because it's self evident that like <laughs> Calvin, Luther, Edwards, none of these guys are inspired. None of them are scripture, and yet there's benefit to reading 
this long lineage of Christian faith and seeing what people have historically believed, what they've rejected and why, and wrestling with those things. Right. And some issues have more weight than others, obviously, and we'll get into that as we go through systematic, but yeah, it's good stuff, man. I think, right, I think ultimately both of us came to reform theology based on, first of all, the plain reading of the text, mm. obviously. Mm-hmm. I think primarily that's where our, our, our main influence came from, yeah. but I think a lot of the rest of understanding that we have um, came from a lot of the, just all the reading we've done from different his, uh, historical theologians. Right. Um, well, I realize you know, I, I'm not I in a vacuum. A, a Wesleyan. <laughs> right. I'm not the first person to read the Bible. <laughs> You're not? <laughs> Goodness. <laughs> um, so, yeah, like you said, it, it challenges our presuppositions and traditions. So, I mean, that's... That's a good thing. It is. And it doesn't mean we have to all become Reformed or we all have to become Baptists or Presbyterians or Dutch Reformed. It means we should weigh what we believe and in, in our interpretations against other people who've spent their entire lives wrestling through the doctrines of Scripture. Right. Right. Anyways. Exactly. Exactly. It's good stuff. So moving on from that, we uh, we jump into philosophical theology. Blake, <laughs> dun, dun, dun. take it away. Of course you left this to me. Philosophical theology. What is that asking of us? So philosophical theology, don't be turned off, folks, friends, uh, by the title, because all it's saying is how do logic and reasoning help us to develop the doctrines taught within the passages of Scripture into a coherent perspective? There's a quote from uh, one of my favorite theologians, Herman Bavink, uh, and he says, For if the knowledge of God has been revealed by himself in his word— it cannot contain contradictory elements or be in conflict with what is known of God from nature and history. God's thoughts cannot be opposed to one another and thus necessarily form an organic unity. Uh, there's a quote from Millard Erickson who says there are three contributions philosophy may make to religion. It may supply content for theology. He says it may defend or establish its truth and it may scrutinize its concepts or arguments. So he's putting very specific restrictions upon the use of philosophy within the broader study of theological issues, right? Mm -hmm. And again, from Bavink, he says, dogmatics or systematic theology is a positive science. That means it gets all of its material from revelation and does not have the right. It does not have the right to modify or expand that content by speculation apart from that revelation. So to people who say, oh, what are you doing with all this philosophy? It's like, no, 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 hold on. We are not trying to be carried away by the vain philosophies of men as the apostle warns us. Rather, we're using philosophy as a tool to maintain a continuity because God isn't going to speak one way and then contradict himself later, contrary to what critics of the Bible claim. If you read the Bible with a with a historical redemptive view, you understand that God isn't ever contradicting himself, right? The law of non-contradiction doesn't bind God because philosophy is greater than God. Philosophy is a, a tool in the arsenal of the theologian to understand this. And the law of non-contradiction, much like mathematics and physics, the law of gravity, simply exists because of who God is. It stems rather from the nature of God. It doesn't impose anything on God. Precisely. And then Dr. Beakey concludes in this section by saying, philosophy may supply arguments and insights that help establish the conclusions, right? The conclusions of systematic theology. But philosophy may not judge the word of God. 
It may critique our fallible systems of theology by sharpening our definitions of terms, purging our arguments from logical fallacies, and testing our teachings for inherent contradictions. But to reiterate what he said, philosophy may never judge the word of God. I think that's critically, critically important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it's like we shouldn't be afraid of using philosophy as a tool because God has given us rational minds. We have a reasonable faith and we should use every tool in our arsenal as we study God, as we defend the faith, which we'll get into uh, a few steps down. But that leads us directly into the topic at hand of systematic theology. And Justin, I'm a little jealous that you get to talk about this, but what is the core question of systematic theology? <laughs> well, systematic theology asks, uh, or rather demands the question, <laughs> mm. what does the whole Bible teach about a given topic and its relation to other topics. Ooh. Now, systematic theology is very unique in that it also has several subsections. <laughs> um, there's Speaking of topics, it's got a lot of topics within it. You have theology proper, the study or the character of God. You have angelology, the study of angels. Biblical theology, the study of the Bible. Christology, the study of Christ. You have ecclesiology, the study of the church. Eschatology, the study of the end times. Hamari... <laughs> I, always, I always screw this one up. Hamartiology, the study of sin. Pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit, soteriology, uh, which is one of our favorites, <laughs> uh, the study of salvation. Yeah, we're going to have um, like a six-part episode just on that subset. Yes. Fair warning. Uh, yes. <laughs> Stick around. Enjoy. Hey. And then obviously theological. I say obviously like it's obvious. It's not obvious. It's only obvious because I'm reading it off of our show notes. <laughs> Got him. Uh, theological anthropology, or the study of the nature of humanity. Hmm. So systematic theology really takes uh, all of those different subjects uh, and talk and t it says, okay, well, what does the whole Bible teach in relation to that one subject? Right. So it often refers to an organized or comprehensive presentation of the whole counsel of God. In other words, we're commanded to, right, we're commanded to, you know, Acts 20, we're commanded to preach and teach the whole counsel of God. Mm. Um, one thing my dad has always said uh, is that he's going to do uh, if you know if he dies and is forgotten? The only thing he wants to be remembered by is the fact that he preaches and teaches the whole counsel of God from the pulpit, um, and that's that's very important. And that's not what we're getting uh, in the West, yeah. uh, at the very least. Um, For sure, a lot of these, um, like Blake was saying, a lot of these uh, evangelifish type uh, are. are <laughs> They're not necessarily teaching things that are heretical, but they're not giving you the whole counsel of God. Yeah. They're giving you a little bit of counsel. Right. It's like Jesus. Maybe a little a, bit of their own advice. Yeah. It's like Jesus is a great example. Jesus is a really good moral teacher. We should like, I, I read a quote in Christ, uh, some Christian website about from Ben Affleck talking about the faith uh, as a met Methodist or something. And he, and he said basically like, yeah, like Jesus, you know, gave us really good advice that we need to heed today. Which again, that's not to that's not any shade to Ben Affleck. I'm praying, you know, praying for him as I pray for other people that are in that kind of position. But that's a very good summation of this of the view in the West is that oh, it's just good moral teaching. Right. Jesus, right. Jesus, Buddha, Gandhi, Muhammad, like they're all kind of they're all kind of good. They just give us some mm -hmm. good principles so that our lives are better. Which or is then not the gospel. Or, or then you get. <laughs> Sorry, I. That's fire. I just don't. Somebody's I, heated. I don't have patience for people putting Jesus 
outside of the context of the gospel message, which is that our sin is so severe that the only way for God to make us right with him is for the son of God to step into history, live a perfect life, fulfill the law we broke and die at our place in a horrific, painful death. The cross shows the vileness of our sin that it took the death of God's only holy, righteous son for us to be redeemed. Let's not lose sight of that. Sorry. (laughs) Now, bear in mind, that is an incredibly inclusive and exclusive message. Right. You know, so when you have those people saying, well, he was just a good teacher. Well, a good teacher wouldn't say, no one comes to the Father but by me. Right. I am the way, the truth, and the right. life. Jesus is is yeah. He's he's radically inclusive in that there is no no type of person, no sin so bad that he can't forgive. That his sin, that his his atoning death doesn't cover. Right? There's no sin right. that is so far right. removed from the grace of God, and yet Jesus is radically exclusive in his singular demand. That you come to the Father by Christ alone. To the solas! Woo! Anyways, back to uh, systematic theology. I think our boy uh, Louis Burkhoff said some stuff about it. <laughs> he, he did. Uh, he says, systematic theology seeks to give a systematic presentation of all the doctrinal truths of the Christian religion. You mean I'm not um, just imposing some system of philo- philosophical thought on the Bible? What? What? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> Good. Uh, basically, it builds a structure of thought that brings each doctrine into clear formulation and organic relation to other doctrines. Um, in other words, you're taking all these different doctrines mm. and you're getting an overarching view of how they relate to one another, how important that is. You know, it's important to understand uh, how your eschatology impacts your view on. Uh, everything else and right. how your soteriology impacts your view on um, angels. I mean, everything matters. Sure. It, it all relates to one another mm-hmm. and it's very important um, to, to get that, to, to piece the puzzle pieces together. Right. Um, <clears throat> so moving on from that, systematic theology collects the teachings of scripture into a coherent body of truth. Again, building on what I was just saying. Mm. It consists of the full revelation given in all of Scripture, the whole counsel of God again. Mm. Uh, And it's a a modern contribution to the discussions of historic theology in light uh, of that history. So in other words, you know, (laughs) we're taking uh, all of what we have and we're piecing those things together in light of uh, what people have been teaching forever. Yeah, that's good. All right. Moving on from there. Apologetic and polemic theology, Blake. Ooh, so, please tell us more about that while I plug in my computer because uh, it is dying. Dun dun dun. Go on. <laughs> Gonna power that up. All right. So, apologetic and polemical theology. What do these words mean? Basically, systematic theology as a study has to engage with erroneous belief systems, whether they are within the the label of Christianity. Right, either truly or fal- or or falsely, right? Because there are some errors that are bigger than others that put us, you know, outside of that label, or engaging with other viewpoints, right? Like Christians 
I mean, like John's letter, First John, he's engaging very specific views, right? Paul is engaging very specific views in his letters. You, you have to deal with erroneous belief systems. Today, we deal with militant atheism. We deal with a, yeah. a, a view of emotions and feelings that put them in a very similar way to some of the stuff John is writing about in First John, where he's talking about this testimony of the spirit, the blood, and the water. And I'm not going to get into all that in First John 5, but... In short, I, I've heard an interpretation and a preaching which I think makes sense where John is appealing not only to the testimony of the Holy Spirit, but also to the real, like, the reality of Christ's baptism, his life, his death, his resurrection, his actual crucifixion. There was actual blood spilled. It's not just a an idea or this, you know, ethereal thing. It's grounded and the Spirit testifies to the reality of that just as the blood and the water testify to what the Spirit is saying. Anyways... <laughs> Um, so, so theology <laughs> always has engaged with these erroneous belief systems and when primarily defending Christian doctrine against outside attacks, right? So when, when atheists come up to us and say, where is your God, right? Who, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? All of these deep, difficult questions, right? That's under the heading of apologetics, which is pre predominantly a defense of the Christian faith against opposition, but mm -hmm. when we're going on the offense, when we're attacking false doctrines and false views, it falls under polemics, right? So those two things are hand in hand, but they're two, you know, they're opposite sides of the same coin. You're basically using your theological viewpoint and, and you're putting it into practice offensively and defensively, ultimately, because truth matters, because God's truth matters. Um, Indeed. Calvin observed that while rational arguments may confirm the truth of Christianity, they can never be the basis of faith. In other words, I can, I can cite to you all of the classical arguments philosophically for the existence of God, but that's not the basis of faith. Calvin goes on, mm -hmm. faith receives the word of God on its own divine authority by the illumination of the Holy Spirit. That is... The things of God are foolishness to natural man, right? To, to man that is perishing, unless the Spirit illuminates them to, to us, we're, we're dead to them. They're, they're foolishness. It's a, it, faith is a gift. <laughs> Crazy. Um, and so <laughs> apologetics must always, which is, this is funny. It's very presuppositional of, of Joel Beakey here. And apologetics is a whole other set of episodes. But apologetics must always stand upon the biblical revelation of God. And it must defend that truth. And so both apologetic and polemic theology are exercises in systematic theology performed in coordination with other disciplines, such as philosophy and history. And you'll see this in apologetics debate, debates, um, like the one of uh, Dr. Gordon Stein versus Dr. Greg Bonson, the atheist versus the, the Christian in, in Bonson. And Bonson is using every tool in the arsenal to utterly demolish the secular worldview. And it's great. I can think of a, I can think of another atheist versus Christian debate that would <laughs> fire up a few listeners. Oh no! But we'll get into that in our apologetics episode. So, Justin, we're coming to, coming we're coming to the end. We're in overtime now. So, what is ethical theology like? What is that about? Because that seems kind of so. I think ethical theology is slightly more self evident, uh, but it's essentially what God has revealed in the whole Bible, all of the Word of God about the duties He requires of us as Christians. Hmm. Um, our morality, our ethics, how we treat believers, how we treat non-believers, how we deal with everything in life when it comes to morality. Hmm. So, Burkhoff says, the truth revealed in the Word of God calls for a life that is in harmony with it. So we have to be in harmony with the Word of God. 
to really be uh, a believer. I mean, that's one of the fruits of the Spirit, I would say, is is being in harmony with what God calls sure. us to do uh, in His Word. And so often um, I see that as a straw man against, like, when mm-hmm. people want to study theology, they're like, oh, you know, you just want to think thoughts and you don't want to actually live it out. But I think Burkhoff here just in a single sentence demolishes that demolishes it's that, like yeah. it's like the truth of the word demand like calls for demands a life in harmony with the revelation that god has given us in his word right absolutely we'll talk about that in an episode about assurance plug 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 <laughs> we have so many episodes uh because the word of god so is inexhaustible <laughs> it's true it's a living word mm. does that does that mean our podcast is a lit note not going there uh that might be so th- heresy <laughs> So through systematic theology and ethical theology, though they're separate, they eventually become separate disciplines that apparently was not always the case. If you want to expand more on that. Sure. So like in like you read Calvin's Institutes as we're doing this year, Mm -hmm. and he Mm -hmm. is deeply ingrained with Christian ethics in the midst of his systematic approach to the whole testimony of God. Right. But in later centuries, that slowly drifted where ethical theology became its own field of study. And unfortunately, that led to a philosophical break where ethics became its own isolated thing, right? right? And so now you have professors yeah. at, you know, one of my friends went to Boston University studying like biblical studies, and he had an ethics class with a professor who was a, a lesbian atheist who's teaching biblical ethics <sighs> as an academic, like, so, so, and, and Burkhoff notes that the results have been disastrous of quote yeah. ethics drifting from its religious moorings. So, and, and this gets very much into like presuppositionalism and some of these other apologetic things. But when it comes to ethics, our ethics have to be more grounded in the word of God, because if we start to isolate them out as some separate category, we end up in this position where we have people who are completely unethical teaching ethics. Um, right like completely against the word of god completely against god's revealed way teaching us what's ethical um and that's i mean why are we in the mess we're in in the west is because we have isolated ethics as a study from theology and beaky doesn't disparage necessarily isolating it as something to you know specifically deal with but he's just pointing out through burkoff's quotes and through a few others in his book that there have been bad results when we separated them too far and when we stopped including a rich ethical tradition in the midst of our systematics. I mean, you can just look at American history, for example. Uh, when ethics were ingrained with theology, uh, you have uh, a, a Christian culture, essentially. Yeah. Our laws, our constitution were founded upon biblical ethics. Right. Um, the freedoms that we have were biblical freedoms. Uh, we were endowed these freedoms by our creator. Right. Uh, I mean, it's it's incredibly biblical. Um, it was certainly not perfect, but uh, in the his grand history of of the planet, yeah. um, I think it was a a profound move forward mm. um, as far as uh, how to create a society based on biblical laws. We live in a which, society, right? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> that turns into that turns into a whole discussion on uh, um, biblical law, yeah. uh, theonomy. Um, and other topics, <laughs> no, absolutely. But yeah. but yeah. So as we've as we've drifted as a culture, yeah. we've separated theology from ethics, mm-hmm. and now we have this massive mess where people are saying 
keep your theology in the church, but we'll let the we'll let the the courts decide what ethics are. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, now we have sixty three million babies dead mm. uh, in in forty years. You know, now we have uh, anybody marrying anybody. Yeah. I mean, you can't divorce ethics from your theology yeah. without a massive disastrous outcome. Yeah. And Burkhoff was writing that years ago, and we're seeing the fruit of that today in, in 2020. 2020 yeah. vision, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry. Hey, hey, people here are here for the dad That's jokes. Right. Um, <laughs> Woo. Last but not least, Amen. practical theology or poimetics, Blake. Please so, take us home. Here we go. Thank you guys for for staying with us on this episode because I honestly this is one of my favorites to do because I feel like we've we've talked about some nitty gritty details along the way and this is like a, a bedrock like we're barely scratching the surface of any of these things but it's just a, a crash course intro to what is theology like what what do we mean when we're studying theology um, so when it comes to practical theology. We're addressing what God has revealed concerning the office and work of pastors. And I think as lay people, it behooves us to understand what God has has given our pastors to do in the churches so that we can better pray for them, so that we can better serve our church and our community when we understand the role and the office of pastor, right? And so um, this includes pastoral qualifications, calling, preaching, teaching, the leading of public worship, catechizing people or, or you know, introducing them and, and helping them to learn and understand the doctrines of the Bible. Counseling, which I've been a beneficiary of, pastoral counseling, um, wisdom and, and, and seeking someone who's praying with me and, and seeking the word of God in life's mess, right? Evangelism and missions. Um, and practical theology can never drift from systematic uh, and Beaky says, lest the practice of the church and her ministers be loosed from its moorings in the truth of God's word. So it's really critical. I mean, we see this in denominations today, right? There are denominations that are doing things that are blatantly ordaining people who are blatantly in sin and do not meet the qualifications for pastor laid out because we have somehow separated our practical theology of how we live our day-to-day life from the systematic theology of what does the entire testimony of scripture say about all these major and critical topics. So all that to say, (laughs) good systematic theology has to draw from all these fields of study, right? You, You don't have systematics without exegesis. You don't have it without biblical theology. You don't have it without a historic lens through which to understand how all these streams of thought have come to us. And you don't have it without philosophical tools at our disposal to keep us from from logical fallacies and from contradictions. And at the same time, systematic serves a couple of purposes. It builds up the church in its worldview. It defends the faith and attacks false and erroneous belief systems. It promotes the truth. It establishes a system of morality and ethics, and it guides pastors in their works. So, yeah, I mean, I'm like, obviously, I'm a big fan of systematic. But as we said in that early quote from Beaky, like the study of theology should drive us to humility because no single individual, no matter how much study we devote, could ever master all of these factors. And we need people studying all of them to help each other. We shouldn't be setting biblical theology against systematic. We shouldn't be setting philosophical theology against exegetical or historical against pastoral. They should all be interconnected ultimately. Why? For the glory of God and for the building up of the church and the edification of the church and for this like, 
I'm on a roll tonight. <laughs> Thank you guys for bearing <laughs> with. I, I think ultimately the goal of the Christian life, aside from uh, glorifying God and enjoying him forever, Ooh. being the chief end of man, mm. I think the goal for the Christian believer outside of providing for his family and his work and, and serving the church, I think ultimately we should come to a place where we ought to have a, a reasonable systematic theology that we understand yeah. because that's going to impact how we do our entire life. Yeah. I mean, our, our life is going to be built upon our theology right. and, and how we interact with the world is going to be built on that. So having a, a proper understanding of what God teaches, um, not that there's you know, not some variations between different systematic theologies and people come to different conclusions. Sure. But obviously that's where things like dogmatics are important because there are things that we have to be dogmatic about, yeah. the core tenets of the faith. Right. But you only understand those if, if you're studying theology. Hey. So, yeah. <laughs> I think I think systematic theology or just theology studying in general is the natural tendency of the believer. Uh, Christians have always been a reading people. Mm. We are we are people of the book. We have the book, mm. sixty six perfectly constructed books given to us for faith and practice. And if you're not reading at least that, <laughs> uh, that worries me. You know that concerns me. And so sure. I think it's incredibly important. Yeah, I agree with that. So on that note, I think uh, I want to end on this Spurgeon quote. This is uh, a phenomenal quote that I read, and, and this is Spurgeon. Uh, speaking of studying theology proper uh, and studying theology in general. He says, other subjects we can compass and grapple with, in them we can feel a a kind of self-content, and we go away with the thought, behold, I am wise. Uh, But when we we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, Mm -hmm. we turn away with the thought that vain man would be wise, but he is like a wild ass's colt, with solemn exclamation, I am of but, of but yesterday, and I know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. Mm. Amen. So, amen to that. If you're new here, which I doubt, <laughs> hey, if you're at this This will be episode, someone's first episode. That's probably true. I, I'm simultaneously sorry and excited for you, because this episode is like... <laughs> I, I really enjoyed recording this. It's also yeah, longer than our normal great. episodes, but you know what? It's a quote-unquote brief introduction to systematic theology. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, goodness. <laughs> um, yeah, with that being said, um, by all means, we, we really appreciate you guys being here. Yeah. We appreciate the support and the fun that we have with, you, with all of you. Um, check us out on Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, uh, Check out our website, distillingtheology.com. If you just search for Distilling Theology on social media, you'll find us. Mm. Um, please, uh, if you want to support the channel, check us out on Patreon. You can get video content, video exclusives, behind the scenes. Uh, down the road, you'll get things like a merch, maybe some giveaways Ooh. and some other fun stuff. And it's less than a cup of coffee if you go to Starbucks and get something really fancy a month. So hey. <laughs> uh, check us out. And uh, again, we we really appreciate you guys, and uh, thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. I echo all that. And um, so what we're going to get into next, going forward, uh, the plan, tentatively, 
We have a couple other interview pieces that are going to be kind of filling out some space. We're going to try to do some series. Um, I don't know exactly how that's all going to work out because we're still a new podcast. This is episode like 15 or 16, so we're still super, super new. Um, But -hmm. I think next week, the tentative plan is to do the same kind of overview approach, but we're going to go specifically on the study of systematic theology, and that will lead into a series going in depth on each of those topics because like it's it's inexhaustible um and then obviously both of us being reformedish calvinistic we want to deal with the doctrines of grace or or the five point calvinism or tulip so that'll be like a you whole say, five episodes you say reformed ish i say ref- <laughs> well you know what i mean um uh is this because i'm a baptist blake sh- <laughs> it's okay um and we, I'm particularly mad about oh, that. Oh, <laughs> super Baptist joke. So particular of you. Oh, gosh. Well, we're going to distinguish between good dad jokes and bad dad jokes and faux dad jokes. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. We'll see you next time on Distilling Theology. Next week, we're going to be tasting Whistlepig 10-year-old rye. And we're going to have a special guest on to discuss Christians and the coronavirus. You're not going to want to miss it. So be sure to like us on Facebook, subscribe to the podcast, follow us on Instagram for some awesome posts, and check us out on Patreon to get episodes before they're released and get that exclusive video bonus content. Thank you all so much. Have a great week. And as always, Soli Deo Gloria.